There's no doubt at the moment <coughs> that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But the wonder of it is that God uses any vessels, whether they're made of earth or gold or silver, they're all used by him. But without him, they would be empty. I was thinking this afternoon that if anybody had got up and walked out after the first part of the meeting, they would have said, oh, they're putting a man on a pedestal. They go back 53 years and tell you how he started and all the things he did and what a wonderful person he was. I don't think much of that chap. But if they'd stopped and they heard what Christ meant to us, then they would have get, got truth in the balance, wouldn't they? And our brother didn't read from the epistle to the Colossians that Christ is all. Yes, they didn't he? No. He said Christ is all in all. He didn't say Christ was the head. He said Christ was the head of the body. Don't you see? Or another example of the same spirit. How should they believe on him of whom they not heard? Well, how should they hear without a preacher? Well, can't God speak? Don't you see? God, in his infinite love and mercy, and marvellous purpose, is never divorcing himself from us poor little human elements. And so we got balanced truth. Now, I'm standing here this evening after a, a long interval and I don't know how long I'm going to last. Either this evening or afterwards. But it's a great joy to be back again at this time. And one of the things that I learned while I was stretched out in bed, I was told I mustn't move. I couldn't get up. Everything had to be done for me. And I thought, well, at least I can pray. And many a time I got so far as saying, Father, that's about all I could say. That's where I finished. And at last I said to myself, well, what more can I say? If I have the right in Christ to look up to God and call him Father, I've said everything that prayer can possibly be. That's our relationship. I am his child. He is my father in Christ. And I can go on to the end of time and attempting to exhaust the meaning of that. But there'll never be a, a die, as it were, a divorce between that relationship. Well now, I want to put on record, this tape is being recorded, I believe, this evening. I want to put on record the indebtedness of all in connection with this work to those Brethren and sisters who, during the interval, while I've been away, I've been away practically six months from this work, have stepped into the breach and have not merely just done the best they could and you thought, oh goodness me, but you've been realising that there has been fulfilled in our very midst that the truth which God has entrusted to us has been passed on to faithful men who have been able to teach others also. I wonder how many churches in London 
with their minister suddenly taken away for six months, would have had a complete supply from their own congregation and carry it on as they have. I felt that it was due to the Lord who has enabled and to those who have so willingly filled the gap that that should be put on record. So I won't say all your names, uh, but you will be remembered, friends, not only in this country, but in the United States, in Canada, in the Antipodes, Australia, New Zealand, and nearly every part of the English-speaking world, thou know what a splendid congregation and wonderful testimony we can give to that side of the story. Well, now we read in our lesson, John 17, and it's largely connected with the question of intercession that I want to occupy your attention. Because that is the thing that I valued and learned most when I was in hospital. I thought, well, if I can't even get my mind round to pray, I'm having at every turn, here's one come today, United States. They've ever kept coming in, as I thought, the Beckenham Hospital will be known all over the world soon. All these folks entering into that very gracious ministry, the ministry of intercession. Well now the word intercede is from a Latin origin. It's a rather dignified word. But it simply means to go between, a go-between. Well that's rather ordinary everyday speech. Inter means between, to intervene, or something which is international, between. And seize, like recede, go back, and intercede means to go between. So the ministry of intercession is a ministry that steps in between. Now you may remember that Job, right back in the early days, expressed that feeling that is in the heart of us all. That is also expressed by the Apostle Paul when he said the one great testimony that belonged to this peculiar witness that he had was the same thing. Shall we turn, just to refresh our memories, to the book of Job? And if any have any difficulty in finding it, it's just immediately before the book of the Psalms. <coughs> and in the ninth chapter, Job makes this statement, and I think most of all can echo it. <coughs> The ninth chapter, verse 32. For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any day's man or umpire between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Now, no angel in glory could step in there. An angel couldn't represent a man fully, and an angel couldn't represent God fully. But there is one who did. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
and he's made his Emmanuel, God with us. The mystery of his being is beyond us. The facts are on the very surface of the scriptures. Now if you turn now to the first of Timothy, you'll see how this is used by the Apostle Paul. The first of Timothy and the second chapter. I'm going to read the first few verses. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved, and come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, not merely to be testified in due times, but a testimony in its own peculiar season. And one thing we must never forget, with all our emphasis upon right division and dispensational truth, that without the one mediator, it's just so many empty words. As I said just before, he is the head, but he's the head of the body. This church has given the name the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What a title. So we're going to look at this mediation. Now, none of us can be a mediator. None of us can fulfill the prayer of Job that we can lay our hand upon both God and man and fully represent them. But we're not shut out from this great mediation in our small measure. For this chapter says intercessions. And the mediator is an intercessor. Is an intercessor. One that stands between so you see, in our small degree, we can mediate in that small measure, although Christ alone is the one mediator. Now the, the thing that I would like to bring before us is the way in which this intercession is distributed in the scriptures. Uh, will you notice First of all, that we go to the very right hand of God, Romans the 8th chapter. Romans the 8th chapter. Summing up the glorious teaching of this chapter, in verse 31 the Apostle says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Many may be against us, but it'll be ineffectual. And it'll only last for a lifetime, if it lasts as much long as that. But there's all eternity afterwards. Who can effectively be against us? He that spared not his own son, 
that delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, with him, also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies, or it might be a question. God that justifies, will he? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, or will Christ who died, yea, rather that is risen again, with even at the right hand of God there is the climax, who also maketh intercession for us. So he goes step by step by step till he gets the right hand of God. And the last word he says there before he gets to the glorious conclusion, who shall separate us, he makes intercession for us. So there's the mediator on our behalf. And there's no night there, day and night. We're never forgotten. Of course, we don't always feel like that. Many a time as we feel down and out. But he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And I've said in meetings before, but I might repeat it here, that in the English language, it's not proper to multiply your negatives. If a person tells you he don't know nothing, you agree with it. <laughs> but in the Greek language they have such a variety of words that they compile them up together and there are actually five negatives in that verse I don't know how to put it in English I will never leave thee nor forsake thee and the man who wrote the hymn whether he had the five in mind or whether it was merely the beat of the rhythm he said the soul that on Jesus that need for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That, that soul, though all hell, should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Now I'm speaking from one, as one that's, well, I am up now, uh, but, uh, I don't feel that I'm up very far and I hope that by the grace of God however weak I may feel I may remember that when I am weak then am I strong for he hath said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now with regard to these this question of the intercession of Christ not only do we have the intercession in Romans, but we have the intercession of Christ in Hebrews. And I would like you to remember that although we wouldn't be right to exclude holiness from Romans or exclude righteousness from Hebrews, yet the general atmosphere of Romans is law and righteousness. And the general atmosphere of Hebrews is a temple and holiness. But whether it be Romans or whether it be Hebrews, whether it be justification or whether it be sanctification, we have Christ making intercession for us. So, if it's a glorious thought to dwell on the passage in Romans 8, as it is, 
it'll be equally a glorious thought to dwell on the passage that comes in Hebrews, uh, I think it is, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The whole chapter ought to be read, we shall not have time to do it now, but the whole chapter is contrasting the Melchizedek priesthood with the priesthood of Aaron. Melchizedek comes into the page of scripture and goes out. We don't know his parentage. He had no beginning of days nor end of life. That doesn't mean to say that he had no beginning or was not born, but nobody knows his ancestry. He was made like unto the Son of God. But the Aaronic priesthood, the priest of Aaron, as soon as that man was ordained to the priesthood, his successor was appointed. And you see, even today, in this ministry, I'm not only the principal, but we have another one. Our brother Stuart Allen, who is so efficiently, fills the bill. I wonder whether I dare tell you what I said to him. If you don't like it, we'll forget it. I said, you know, when they abbreviate our titles, they call me the Prim and you the Asprim. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you forget that, you see, but that's what I ought not to have said. But it, it may mean that I'm, I'm getting better, you see, or worse. I don't know which. Well, now, seriously, back to Hebrews 7. It says in verse 23, about these priests in the Old Testament times. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, here's the contrast, but this man, because he continueth ever, this word is going to occur again in a moment in Hebrews. It's one of the strongest words in the Greek language for eternity. It's not merely the word usually translated forever. Istodionetes, literally translated, is unto perpetuity. Unto perpetuity. No possible ending. This man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable, no, an intransmissible. It isn't the priest who won't change into something else. It's the priesthood will never be passed on to anybody else. Christ has no successor. Isn't that a blessed truth? Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. You see, this is not salvation in the initial sense. Those to whom he's speaking were saved people. They were partakers of the heavenly calling but they were saved from the uttermost by his sacrificial death and they are saved to the uttermost by the fact that he who died for them lives for them. And the word uttermost contains within itself one of the key words of Hebrews which is perfect. If you go through Hebrews you'll find perfection, perfecting, perfect all the way through. And this Pantelis, the word uttermost, is unto all perfection. I'll give you another passage that bears on this in a moment. But how is this brought about? Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Why? Seeing he ever liveth. 
He lives in resurrection power. He sits at the right hand of God. He occupies the place where the accuser would stand in a law court. He ever living. And what is he there to do? To make intercession for them. Makes intercession. Now if you turn to the 10th chapter, you will appreciate that this brings us to the end of a section because it starts with the words, verse 12, but this man. You see, the apostle writing by inspiration of God didn't forget that he said, this man, now he comes back to this man, rounds it off. He says, verse 12, in contrast to the priests in verse 11, that stand daily, ministering and offering oftentimes, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, he's on a little different ground now. When he first of all said, but this man, it was in contrast to priests that died. Now he says, but this man, is in contrast to priests that never sat down in connection with their work. I think I've told you before that once I was caught out by a child in a little meeting, I was describing something about the furniture in the tabernacle. I said there was no seat. I asked for it, didn't I? The little mite says, there was. There was a mercy seat. Yes. But no priest ever sat on that. It was all right. No accommodation was made because it was to symbolise the fact that their work was going over and over and over again. And its only value was its type and its shadow. But the real was Christ. So we're back now to this man. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice for sins. And she forever sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool so on that throne, he's ever living to make intercession for us, and he's continually expecting the end when all enemies shall be under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, and the Son shall deliver up the far- to the Father a perfected kingdom that God, at long last, may be all in all. That's where we're getting, but we haven't got it quite here. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Here it comes, for by one offering, he hath perfected unto perpetuity. That's the same word that we had in chapter 7. Unto perpetuity. Perfected forever. Them that are sanctified, set apart, redeemed, atoned for by that one offering. So I think you'll see that while we say we must commence a cross, we mustn't forget the ascended Christ and the seated Christ at the right hand. For that makes a completion of his work. Well now, I don't want to occupy too much time, both for your sakes and particularly my own. Because I discover that even if I move a bit rapidly and 
partly dressing myself, my heart does a little war dance, and I have to sit down and stop. So, I'm coming back again to Romans the 8th chapter, because there's another reference to intercession in that chapter. You say, but surely, if Christ at the right hand of God ever lives to make intercession for us, we need no more. Well, we may think so. But he doesn't. He's provided another one down here as well as up there. So, will you notice in verse um, 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. This is not to do with our sins. They are settled by Christ. But our infirmities. Well, we've got plenty, haven't we? Of course, we can't see them ourselves, but the other folks who live with us, they know all about it. As I said to Mummy once or twice, I said, if I wasn't naturally sweet-tempered, and I don't get much further than that, you see. (laughs) (laughs) Here it is. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. I thought to myself, here the nurse says, you mustn't move, you've got to stop there. 24 hours of it. And I tried to pray and all I could get out was, Father. He says, here we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But I wasn't left without an intercessor. No. But it says here, but the Spirit Make itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now you see, that's where some of us break down. We pray, and we may not always be praying according to the will of God. We may ask and not receive. For God cannot answer all our prayers with yes, otherwise it would be chaos, wouldn't it? So we have now a paraclete here. And you know there's a paraclete there. The word paraclete is used particularly for a title of the Holy Spirit. But the first epistle of John, chapter 2, says, If any man sin." We have an advocate with the Father. That's the word paraclete. And the word para means alongside of, and cario means to call. It means someone who is always near at hand if I'm in trouble. But he doesn't tell you what to do all the time. He waits for you to ask. And the moment you ask, you'll come to your aid. Because you see, if you never let a person start try to walk, If you always save the little child from falling down bump, it'll never walk at all. But he never lets you go too far. And the moment that need is there, he's always at call. But it does say that even though we don't know what to pray for as we ought, there's one thing we do know. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, all things can include those things which are evil as well as those that are good. But God is on the throne. 
and how he does it, we don't know. So, sometimes, the very best thing we can do is to just leave it with God and not tell him everything he ought to do. In the Old Testament, when my heart is overwhelmed, he said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And in that same context, he says, I will cry. Cry. Now there's no grammar, no verbs and adverbs and prepositions and what not in the word cry. But a mother, who is a mother indeed, she interprets that cry. Now that's prayer. I suppose you have read in a book about the finest prayer that was ever offered to a New York congregation. That's an awful thing to have to say, isn't it? Offered to a congregation. When our prayers are true, they may be brief. God is in heaven. Thou art on earth. Let thy words be few. We know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit that knows the will of God, he makes intercession for us. Well now, that's the Christ at the right hand of God, that's the Spirit representing him down here, and the passage we just glimpsed at in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that we too have this ministry of intercession. And that's the thought that comforted me so much when I was in hospital. For nearly every post, I was getting this from the ends of the earth, all remembering me, all remembering me before the throne of grace. The intercession of God's people was being exemplified then. And I want now to turn to a passage which uh, I think we ought to include because of its context. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 2, but we'll soon find out. Maybe 1, chapter 1. Yes, chapter 1. In my notes I've left out the chapter, but... Uh, I find that my memory is like a sieve just now and uh, many a time I'm just stuck because I've put something away so carefully that I shouldn't lose it, that we're still looking for it. But uh, that's my infirmity, you see, again coming up. So one, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and the Apostle is speaking about the ordeal through which he had passed, but it leads on to a reference to the question of intercession. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. Well, the apostle was not one to exaggerate. In fact, writing to these very Corinthians, after he'd given them a list enough to swamp any man ten times over, beaten and flogged and starving and shipwrecked and whatnot, 
the filth of the world, the scouring of all things. He said, this light affliction, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. Of course, if you've got your eye on the afflictions, well, they look vast. But if you can look away to where Christ sits, at the right hand of God, they'll get in true perspective. So here he says, I was pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. So this man who didn't exaggerate, he was in a fix, wasn't he? You could feel that. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. What for? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. And it's the God that raiseth the dead, which is the peculiar character of the God we believe. The first occurrence of that term takes you right back to the days of Abraham, who, though he and his wife were past the age of having a child by nature, both as it were dead so far, before whom he believed God who quitted the dead. That was the faith of Abraham. And that is our faith. One beyond all human uh, gauges or measurements. So it says here, God that quickeneth, raiseth the dead, who delivered us, this is in the past, from so great a death, and doth deliver us, that's in the present, is going on, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. For our Saviour has a threefold title, Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday, he did deliver us. Today, he doth deliver us. And to come, he will deliver us. Now if I stop there, that would be wonderful enough. But the next verse is like, here, wait. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. What a context to put your prayer in mind. Here's a man who's got the sentence of death in himself. He's pressed out of measure, beyond strength. The only trust that he can have that's effective is to trust in a God that raises the dead. And after he said that, he says, ye also helping together by prayer for us. So I felt that although I wouldn't be able perhaps to dive very deeply and exhibit all sorts of problems and so on, that this very emphasis upon something which is very precious to us all might be accepted as a word in season. In your actual leisure, you might like to look up one or two passages in the Old Testament that give you some samples. I won't turn to the passages because you know your Bible enough to know that in the book of Numbers, when Joshua was being attacked, Moses went up onto a mountain and while his hands were lifted up, Joshua down in the valley triumphs. 
But with his hands dropped through weariness, the enemy triumphed. And so there were two, Aaron on one side, her on the other, that held his hands up. Now we can't hold up our hands in the sense that Christ does, and he doesn't get weary. But there is that fellowship between us, that he intercedes, and we, in our small little measure, we also can intercede for one another. And then also we have that wonderful moment when Abraham comes into the presence of God in the book of Genesis, because God has revealed that Sodom is to be destroyed. And Lot and his family, Abraham's nephew, is in Sodom. So he goes into the presence of God and with a certain amount of diffidence he says, I wonder whether I could ask you, uh, would you destroy Sodom if there were fifty there? No, said the Lord, if there are fifty righteous there, I'll spare it. Abraham says, no, I don't like to press this point, I'm standing in the presence of the living God, I'm only dust and ashes. Supposing there were only forty-five. Supposing, supposing there were only forty. Thirty-five. Oh my, I believe if ever God's heart rejoiced, it was to see that man who he called his friend, standing there like that. And he got down to a certain number, he thought, well, I can't go anymore. That's the God to whom we pray. And then we have other passages which you could find like Aaron stepping in with his incense between the living and the dead and so on. There's one more further thing that I think I'll leave with you before I sit down. John 17. That's an intercession. But there's one expression in John 17 that is never recorded of anyone else in the whole wide world. You've often heard people pray, haven't you? Have you ever heard anyone stand up in the presence of the living God and say, Father, I will? I hope you haven't. Not one of us have the right to say that. But when the Son of God was in communion with his Father, he could say, Father, I will. That puts him apart from all the rest of us. And so in his condescension, he has become our head, our saviour, and he invites us to share with him in this ministry of intercession. Well now I'm sure you would not like me to go on and overdo it. Because uh, I've got all sorts of complaints. I hardly know their names, but I know what they feel like. And I didn't want to spoil. But I'm also grateful to think that at long last, I'll be able to come back and look you all in the face. And stand up here, because I was arguing, why don't you sit down and speak to them? Oh, I could no longer sit down there and talk. I've got to be up here. And uh, I believe that you will agree with me both this afternoon and I hope this evening. It has been well worth the time spent in coming together, in thinking of our risen, glorified, seated Saviour, and thinking of the relationship established between him and us, poor earthen vessels, that nevertheless he stoops to you.